Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, how do you become a master at winning contests? We meet an Ontario woman who enters as many as 200 a week, up to 500 around the holidays. What's her secret? How does she make it work? What's the best thing she's ever won? We find out. President Joe Biden was given a chocolate bar by Green MP Elizabeth May during his visit to Ottawa on Friday. The Nova Scotia-based company that made it is called Peace by Chocolate. And that one bar is wrapped in an incredible story of passion and love, success, war, displacement, and finding a new home here in Canada. We meet a Toronto mom who wants answers from Air Canada after the airline refused to store her teenage son's collapsible wheelchair in the passenger cabin, despite her having spent hours making sure it was possible. And she shares her story on the same day that the Auditor General released a report saying people with disabilities still face major barriers using Canada's airlines and passenger rail services. But first, the federal budget is out tomorrow and it will prove a delicate balancing act for Finance Minister Christian Freeland between showing restraint in uncertain economic times while meeting expectations for investment in areas such as clean energy, healthcare, and beyond. What Canadians want right now is for inflation to come down and for interest rates to fall. And that is one of our primary goals in this year's budget, not to pour fuel on the fire of inflation. So in our budget, we will exercise fiscal restraint. There you go. We're talking federal budget this half hour. Of course, Freeland's budget will aim to show that the government's focused on fiscal responsibility after posting some pretty big deficits during the pandemic. And at the same time, she'll also have to promote some spending, right? Because there are so many things out there that need investment, including stuff such as dental care, which is part of their agreement with the NDP. So what to expect? Joining me now is Tyler Meredith. He's a founding partner at Meredith Boston Cool Policy Advisors. He's a former economic policy advisor to the current government and a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at U of T. Tyler, thank you so much. Hi, thanks for having me. So this must be, I mean, you you know what this looks like behind the scenes. This must be some late nights for everyone who's involved in putting this together. Well, right now, I can tell you it's probably not that much of a late night because, frankly, everything's done. The material's all prepared. Um, It's really about girding yourself for tomorrow and making sure you have a plan for all of the various uh, answers that you have to give to the many questions that will come at you. So what are you looking for? I mean, there's there's a delicate balancing act with every budget, both fiscal and political, and this one is no different. But the landscape is changing very quickly. Yeah. I, look, I think the most important thing um, for me going into this budget is um, you often have, as you work through a budget, a change in events that occurs over the course of the time that you're working on the budget, right? So last year we had Omicron, we had the Emergencies Act, we had a war in Ukraine. And those things are important because it means that as you're going through the budget, you move things around and other things take on greater uh, prioritization, right? So that's why in last year's budget, Um, references to international security and defense were at the top of the agenda because that's just where we were. But in this case, this year, it's not so much about events as much as it is the changing economic environment. And that's a much harder place to be because as the economy changes, and in particular as, as growth slows, slows faster than we expected, and we see now the implications of um, the all of the rate hikes that have gone on in Canada and, and in other uh, developed countries, uh, there's a lot of vulnerability out there, a lot of financial and fiscal vulnerability that's out there. And the government would have built its its budget on the basis of inputs um, that were gathered in January that are now changing. And so it'll be interesting to watch 
how do they acknowledge that? How much does the, does the reduction in growth actually um, squeeze the fiscal pie that they have to be able to spend and spend perhaps more smartly in certain areas? And also, what is the downside scenario? If we have a recession later this year, what are the ways in which we're planning for that? Um, I actually think the downside scenario that they're going to show this year is probably more important than um, at any budget that they've tabled outside of COVID. Really interesting because because we know that there is also a lot of pressure on them to spend too. There's a lot of pressure for investment. We've seen the Inflation mm-hmm. Reduction Act in the U.S. Uh, clearly, people are struggling with affordability. There's a lot to invest in healthcare, um, you know, dental care. There's a lot out there to spend on. And you're right, the, the the landscape is changing, so they can't be seen to be spending too much. Well, I think, and I think this is actually kind of the the key tension point, right? That and that you you uh, that the government has had to work through, and even Minister Freeland kind of acknowledged it there in the clip that you that you played. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we need to spend, and arguably, I would say it's not so much about whether to spend; it's whether we're spending on the right things, and are we, in particular, going to be devoting more attention in this budget to things that will build longer-term economic growth, right? How do we maintain our competitiveness in the United States? How do we ensure that we have a, a balanced and affordable housing market, knowing that um, that increasingly is, is an important uh, marker of how we build a strong middle class? Um, the, these are things, in addition, to, obviously, to things like health care, um, these are things that you, you kind of, as table stakes, have to invest in, and those are going to require significant dollars. And I would say this is where the government kind of trying to say at the same time we're going to have an ex- we're going to exercise restraint is maybe not the, um, the the easiest message to pull off because everyone has a different definition of what restraint is. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that's communicated tomorrow. But more importantly, um, it's really about how you spend and are you spending in ways that promote longer term growth? And I think, to, to be honest, I think the government's going to put out a very interesting economic strategy around jobs and growth, and they should right. really hammer that. Yeah, what could that look like, do you think? I mean, we know a few things. As always, there's a few things that are already out there tonight that have been leaked uh, selectively about what we may see tomorrow, an extension of that GST rebate. They're going to call a grocery rebate. I mean, clearly everyone in government understands the, the vulnerabilities, the sensitivities that are out there amongst the electorate. But some of the things you're talking about are a bit, are a bit more big plan stuff that will be parsed over by people, not necessarily just looking for the, as we call it, sort of the mum and pop stuff. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of emphasis on talking about how is it that we're rebuilding our industrial base across the country, which is going to be different in different regions of the country, as we think about how to create longer term opportunity for Canada in a clean growth, low emission environment. So that will mean how do we attract auto investments in southern Ontario? How do we build battery production in Canada because we're an energy superpower? How do we support the oil and gas industry in Alberta, Saskatchewan and parts of British Columbia to make that decarbonization transition through things like carbon capture, utilization and storage? Um, How do we develop our critical minerals to be able to be a supplier of choice to the United States as we develop many of the things that will be the components of zero emission vehicles and other um, things that are in demand um, in the future as as we build a clean growth economy, right? We saw with President Biden uh, in his visit last week that many of these same things were actually at at the touchstone of what is both the economic plans in the United States, as well as I think economic plans in Canada, and I would argue, in in some ways, if you if you didn't have a chance to look at the at the budget tomorrow, if you didn't have a chance to read the document or watch the speech, probably the best analog that you can find for how to explain what tomorrow's budget is about is actually in the things that Biden and Trudeau focused on, particularly around clean growth, because that's something that's going to tie together 
the future of the economy in places like Ontario, as well as Alberta and British Columbia. Yeah, I mean, it simply makes sense, too, if the Americans are investing heavily. It simply it does make sense for us to follow. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, follow in, follow in their, you know, catch, the, catch their, their, uh, their follow behind them necessarily, that catch that momentum. But it certainly makes sense in some ways to, to follow along suit with what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. But you know what's, what's ironic is we talk about these things as how is Canada going to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act and all of the subsidies right. that, that the United States has put out there for uh, investments in things like zero emission vehicles and, and um, uh, the carbon capture and storage. But what's interesting is Canada was actually working on all of these things well before the IRA was, was even a concept. Um, carbon capture and storage uh, and, the, and the, the way in which the tax system can support it is something that goes all the way back to 2021 um, as a thing that Minister Freeland actually first announced as an idea in her 2021 budget coming out of COVID. But it's just it's, it's such a big piece of work that it's taken that long. And in that period of time, again, back to what we were talking about before, about changing events and changing circumstances, the whole world changed when the Inflation Reduction Act past because what it did was it took the areas that where Canada was actually leading the world in investments in clean growth thanks to things like um, our carbon pricing system as well as our investments in the net zero accelerator and various industrial initiatives and actually just leapfrogged that and so Canada has this existential challenge that if it wants to maintain its industrial footprint in this in the space we we have to catch up and not only catch up but find ways um, to leverage our resources to be uh, to continue to be a leader. Now, there's always some politics in here too, Tyler. And I imagine there's going to be some things uh, that deal with some political issues. One of them is we're reading tonight that there's going to be savings. They think in cutting back on the amount of consultants they use, and I'm not sure what exactly that 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 will entail. But it seems to be something they're committed to talking about tomorrow. Yeah, I saw that story too. I think they were estimating uh, and somewhere in the order of about $7 billion over five years, which when you consider that, um, I believe by memory, it's somewhere around just under $20 billion gets spent in that category over the course of a year. You know, seven over five, is an, it's not insignificant, but, but it would be somewhere in the order of, of maybe a 5% um, savings. So, um, so that's, you know, significant. Um, I think it responds to obviously the politics of what we've seen with the recent controversy around McKinsey. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, the question is, are these going to be longer term sustainable savings? I mean, you can cut uh, spending on outsourcing, but uh, history would suggest that it tends to come back in the form of other pressures. Right. And another one I've been seeing is is fees, right? Junk fees, as they're called sometimes, which is excess fees. I'm just trying to figure out what sort of more eye-catching things are going to be there. They may not be big budget items per se, but they're sort of, they're meant to to grab attention whenever a budget document comes out. Yeah, look, I mean, two certainly that I think would pop with some people uh, uh, in addition to what you just mentioned there. So uh, one is obviously um, uh, interchange fees. These are the, the fees that merchants pay on uh, when you swipe a credit card. The government mm-hmm. has indicated before it's been trying to lower those fees in negotiations with uh, financial institutions and Visa and MasterCard. We'll see whether or not there's progress on that. I would think given that they're saying that they want to go after junk fees, it's, it's likely that that would be another area that might result in some savings for small businesses. I think it's also possible that we could see a change in the criminal rate of interest, which would lower um, the maximum amount of interest that you can charge on things like um, uh, a short-term loan. Um, it might save a little bit of money for people who are, um, at this moment in time, you know, having to access short-term credit. Um, and another thing that you might also see um, 
uh, is potentially uh, um, some changes just on on the regulatory front and whether there are um, and and just you know whether there's an attempt to try to bring some simplification to things. Um, this is something that, like the junk fees, doesn't actually save the government any money, doesn't cost the government any money, but it, it's a way that the budget can be used as a tool um, to help people. How about NDP priorities in all this? Because clearly, in the last budget, uh, the dental you know dental plans was a big was a big one, and the NDP have been looking for an increase in that. And I assume, given their given their arrangement that uh, that the NDP do have some leverage here. They do. And, and, and this is what's important is that, you know, there are several tests that the budget is going to have to pass in order for us to know that um, uh, it has the full support of, of the NDP and also that it's, it's regarded as a credible document for the government of Canada. So one is obviously, will, will Mr. Singh say tomorrow afternoon, uh, you can trust that we believe that we're confident enough that we can support this. I think the the likely answer, given um, what we've seen going into this, is he's going to say absolutely yes. Um, in fact, I think he's he's getting more or less a lot of the things that we want, like a GST tax credit top up for vulnerable people, as well as um, as you say uh, some further investments in dental care. Those are significant. The dental care money is is going to be uh, on top of money that the government has already committed for. Um, the dental benefit that's now in existence for um, for children um, and for low-income families, um, as that that gets expanded to cover uh, people of working age and seniors, um, that's going to require several billion dollars more on top of the you know forty-six billion dollars over the next ten years that was committed to in the health accords, um, and uh, he's going to probably also get the GST tax credit. So so those. Those are going to be big things for the NDP, um, and he will likely support it. The second test that the um, that the budget kind of has to clear, or any finance minister wants to clear within the first 24 to 48 hours, is how do markets react to this? How do credit right. rating agencies react to this? Um, the average person probably doesn't necessarily care what S&P and Moody's and DBRS and Morningstar have to say, but it matters because whether or not there's a change in the credit rating for the government of Canada affects the cost at which the government can borrow. And to the extent that the costs that the government borrows at are low and cheap, uh, it also means that other things in the economy that we all borrow for remains low and cheap because a lot of things are priced against that um, underlying benchmark. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, does S&P and Moody's look at um, the direction that's happening of, of the slowing of growth in the economy and the fiscal track and say that's sustainable or unsustainable. Likely, they're going to say it's sustainable. Canada's actually in a very strong fiscal position. But again, you want to see what credit rating agencies are saying because it reflects how Canada's budget is seen globally. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. We'll be watching tomorrow. Thank you. have seen this last night. It was quite the scene in cities across Israel, Tel Aviv, particularly as thousands, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets. Um, It's part of a much larger protest movement that's been going on uh, over time. It's been fueled by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, contentious judicial overhaul plans and specifically his decision to fire his defense minister yesterday after he called for a pause to that overhaul. This protester was among those making their voices heard today. We all have to fight for our rights because of the plans of Benjamin Netanyahu that want to 
turn this nation into a dictatorship. Well, those are pretty strong words, and we're going to try to parse them and get to the bottom of why people are saying things like that about Israel. Uh, departing flights out of the country's main international airport were grounded in protest today, affecting thousands of travelers. There was a general strike and so forth. Here at home, Israeli dis- diplomats joined a strike against Netanyahu's plans today. The embassy, consulates were closed across the country. And then late today... The Israeli Prime Minister announced he's delaying those reforms because of all that's gone on, something he called a real threat to national unity. And he'll delay it to the next parliamentary session because he wants to seek a compromise over uh, the package with his political opponents. Now, this appears to have calmed some tensions. I believe some of the strikes, at least, have been called off for tomorrow. But it doesn't really solve the underlying issues that have been plaguing the country for a while now. They've had several elections in the past few years, uh, and this is yet another symbol of it. So how did we get here? What's next? Yale Aronoff is a professor of international relations at James Madison College at Michigan State University. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, it's good to be with you. Just to put it into context, because I think people often see protests and think, oh, well, I wonder, you know, we had France last week and we kind of know what they were fighting about. But this was this was a unique moment in Israeli history, what unfolded last night and into today. Yeah, it's seen as the biggest kind of danger to Israel's democracy and its 75 years of history. Uh, and the, I mean, we see this phenomena of popular national, populist national uh, leaders uh, challenging the power of the courts and the power of the media. We've seen it in the United States. We've seen it in different European countries and all across the world. Uh, but this has happened uh, very rapidly in Israel in the last three months since the last government was formed on uh, December 29, 2022. Uh, and since then, they've tried to uh, pass through uh, legislation that would really diminish the power of the high court to have judicial review. Uh, and they want things like uh, the Knesset or the parliament mm-hmm. having a simple in a simple majority overruling uh, the high court decisions that might say that some of the legislation is unconstitutional. Israel doesn't have a constitution, but it has basic laws that uh, are like a quasi-constitution. So I think, you know, uh, the sectors across the country have seen this as a real danger to democracy. And so you've seen the military, business entrepreneurs, uh, doctors, lawyers, universities, labor unions, uh, everyone uh, go on strike today, as you mentioned. But these demonstrations have been happening for three months where you have 250,000 to 500,000 Israelis demonstrating, and that would be equivalent uh, to one to two million Canadians demonstrating right. every single every single week for three months. What what about this issue? Because I think a lot of Canadians and a lot of Americans will understand, you know, the, the you know the division of power within a democracy and where the court stands. Uh, but within the Israeli context, it strikes me that the court is occupies a special place in terms of its ability to be seen to be nonpartisan. Um, what has been the anger about these plans, and and what is what is Benjamin Net- Netanyahu proposed doing here? Uh, he's proposing to, um, as I said, through legislation that the by a simple majority of the Knesset or the parliament, that they would be overruling um, the high court if the high court stated that a piece of legislation was unconstitutional, so to speak, they would be able to override that as well. And therefore, the court would lose its ability to act as a check on the government. They also would want to stack the court with kind of uh, politicized uh, 
members so that the uh, committee that appoints the judges would have uh, members of the coalition government in the committee and that they would only be able they would be able to choose uh, judges by a simple majority of that expanded committee whereas now there are nine members some of them are uh, appointed by a judicial committee an independent body and they need a um, you know seven out of nine uh, members to vote on judges so it would be much more politicized uh, and therefore we can again the independence of the court. Considering how uh, tightly fought elections have been, there have been five since 2019 in Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a name you'll recognize. He's back. He was gone for a while, uh, out of power. Considering what what a delicate balance politics in Israel are, are right now, it seems like quite the stretch to try to push through this kind of legislation with within this environment. Yeah, I mean, it certainly uh, is a, a very difficult situation. Um, and I think that's why he decided to halt or freeze his attempts to pass this legislation for a month until the end of April after the Passover recess that the Knesset has. Um, however, I mean, his prime concern right now is staying out of jail um, because right. of indictments of breach of trust and fraud and corruption and staying in power. And therefore, he needs these extremists. Um, uh, small parties in his coalition, otherwise the government will collapse and they have a lot of power. So one of those ministers, the extremist uh, Ben Gvir, uh, was able to get the reward of now um, uh, being uh, supervising Israel's National Guard, which is dangerous right. in itself, given his views. It was interesting to see because so often the military keeps very clear of politics in most places. But in this case, the military came out uh, very quickly to say that um, and, and that it was the firing of the defense minister yesterday who was sort of reflecting the views of the rank and file here uh, that, that unleashed this latest wave of protests or the, this larger eruption of protests. It's maybe a bit about why the military opposes this, because you don't often see them wade into these sorts of arguments in any country. Well, uh, partly it's because in Israel there's conscription where most uh, Israelis serve in the military, and then most Israelis serve in the reserves until they're 40 years old. So mainstream society, unlike in the U.S., where less than 1% of the uh, people serve in the military, I don't know what percent it is in Canada. Oh, it's Uh, low, yeah. In yeah. Israel, it's main, mainstream. You know, your uh, your average person on the street is a reservist in the military, and so um, that's why they they have a, a voice, a greater participation and voice, perhaps, in what's going on. And so, thousands of reservists and elite pilots and people in cybersecurity have said, "We're not going to show up for work, or we're not going to serve." Uh, an undemocratic government or a government that who, whose democracy is weakening to such an extent. And so that's why they have that power. They also um, know that that this will weaken Israel's security situation um, as well uh, if it's no longer a democracy um, and that the military wants to serve. So I think for that reason, uh, they have uh, a lot of power. And also given Israel's continuing security threats on the Lebanese border, Syrian border, Iran, and so forth, 
um, that because of those security threats, people still have respect for the military. And it's because Netanyahu, the military and intelligence were saying, we need to brief you on the negative and dangerous security repercussions of your legislation that will weaken democracy. And he refused to to uh, listen to them or get intelligence from them and instead fire the defense minister. So that uh, galvanized the outrage uh, uh, amongst a lot of the public. Um, Yeah, when you look at this, where does this go? Because it feels like there's a standoff happening within Israeli society that's deeper than this. We've seen it in several elections in a row. Uh, There feels like there needs to be a real conversation within about with these by these opposing groups, but it doesn't feel like it's happening. It feels like it's all or nothing when in power now. Yeah, it's a very polarized society, which is, uh, as you said, why there have been five elections in four years. Um, and I think there's there are some opportunities, perhaps, for for dialogue. The uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, who are leaders of the centrist parties, um, have offered at this point to um, to have dialogue with Netanyahu and some of uh, the other ministers, um, as the president Herzog. Uh, tried um, a couple of weeks ago to try to get a compromise, people to talk about a compromise, and the government rejected that. So perhaps now uh, that Netanyahu sees, you know, uh, you know how so many participated in the strikes and sees all these demonstrations, perhaps he will um, offer some opportunities for dialogue. Uh, but there's also a lot of distrust of Netanyahu. He's often gone back on his word <laughs> with uh, in, in many in many previous occasions, which is why uh, many of the demonstrators have said they will continue demonstrating despite the halt in the um, for a month because they don't trust um, what he'll do in a month, or they don't trust that he'll genuinely um, have dialogue. And so a lot of there's a lot of distrust and uh, the Labor Party and uh, other such parties in Israel um, are not offering <laughs> to participate in such dialogue. But the centrist parties are are, are offering to. Um, but they're also saying uh, that they don't necessarily trust them and they'll have to see um what he's able to put on the table. Unfortunately, yeah. he's also getting pressure from this extremist Ben Gvir and from his own son, who's kind of. Uh, one of his closest advisors, who's also kind of uh, not necessarily, I don't think, advising him to compromise. Right. And and how should we be viewing this from abroad? Because, I mean, clearly we had the impact of it insofar as today uh, a lot of them. We saw the Consul General of New York resigned yesterday. We saw the consulates and the embassy here today closed in solidarity with with the strikes and so on. As a foreign policy issue, does this remain very much an internal Israeli issue or are there real foreign policy concerns here? Because people, I mean, I know the White House reacted to it today, but people have been kind of watching this from afar for a while now. Yeah, I mean, there are real uh, foreign policy repercussions that if Israel's democracy is weakened, um, it will really harm a lot of its relations with the United States, with European countries and others, um, as well as with uh, the countries uh, of, that signed normalization agreements with just in the last two or three years in the Abram Accords, uh, which right. include the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and so forth, So, uh, and its relations with uh, even immediate neighbors like Jordan. So uh, I think there is kind of a real concern uh, that this is damaging Israel's foreign relations, it's damaging its economy, uh, and so forth. So 
Um, the Biden administration has communicated uh, that they are strongly opposed. Of course, they wouldn't invite Netanyahu uh, to the White House, which is unusual. Uh, and um, apparently when they communicated over the phone, uh, Biden <laughs> put it strongly that he doesn't want to see Israel's uh, democracy weakened and that urging him to have dialogue and, and have consensus around any proposed reform. Yeah, Netanyahu has found his way out of a lot of jams over the years. What do you think? What do you think happens here? Do you think he backs down, given all that we've seen in the last twenty-four hours and in the last three months, as you mentioned earlier? Um, I think he's probably going to try to play it both ways because he has to appease these extremists that he helped create, in a sense. Um, and they they were uh, very fractured and a lot less popular. And he supported the the merging. Um, so that he could bring them in the coalition. And now he's beholden to them. He says that he's the one who can control them, um, but he hasn't been doing that su- that successfully in the last three months. So um, he certainly will try to, you know, to navigate his way through this um, and try to kind of uh, dampen the strikes and the demonstrations and the criticism for broad on one hand, but on the other hand, having to appease this extremist. And we'll see whether he's able to navigate this or for how long he'll be able to navigate this, because uh, at some point um, he may not be able to, uh, to, to have, you know, keep all the balls in the air that he's trying to keep in the air. And and stay out of stay out of jail too, right? I mean, a part of this exactly. is motivated by by his own desire to avoid some of these some of these court proceedings or these some of these charges against him. Absolutely, he could would have the potential of spending several years in jail, and I think that's really altered how he's been. He's been Israel's most long lasting prime minister. Um, and in the past, he at least, you know, uh, part of his intention was how he perceived uh, the good of the society uh, for Israel and so forth. Uh, but And he's been very risk-averse throughout his life. I wrote a book on the political psychology of Israeli prime ministers in which I have right. a chapter on him. And he is risk-averse. Um, but uh, right now he's taking big risks in terms of Israel's economy, Israel's security, Israel's democracy, um, all uh, in order to, I think, stay out of jail and keep in power. And so uh, he, he's, he's, he's willing to take much greater risks than he was in most of the years that he served as prime minister. Well, Yale Aronoff, thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to date and shedding some light on what exactly is happening on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and elsewhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I had a tough weekend, my next guest, and we'll explain why, but first, some broader context here. It may come as absolutely no surprise to you today that the Auditor General has found that people with disabilities still face major barriers using Canada's airlines and passenger rail services. It's frustrating enough to land after a flight to only find out that your luggage didn't make it. Now consider that your missing cargo is not your toothbrush or an extra change of clothes, but your wheelchair. That's Karen Hogan, the Auditor General, talking about the fact that one-third of people with disabilities who use federally regulated transportation, such as airlines or passenger rail, faced a barrier. Uh, Now, of course, the federal government is committed to making this country accessible and barrier-free, 
by 2040. But her the findings will come as absolutely no surprise to one Toronto-area family tonight. They are demanding answers from Air Canada after a return flight from Phoenix turned into a story that seemed to exemplify exactly the kind of barriers that the Auditor, Auditor General was pointing to. Katie Schultz was returning from a trip to the Grand Canyon, a birthday journey for her son, Emery, who turns 16 today. Emery Gellison was diagnosed with a rare disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy in 2014, which means even as a teen, he can only walk short distances and he has a wheelchair that he relies on. His family had arranged for his collapsible wheelchair to be stored in the passenger cabin in a closet for the flight back to Toronto instead of in cargo. Whereas we well know, and we've seen stories about this in the past, they can be damaged. His mom, who happens to be a litigator and managing partner at Schultz Frost Lawyers in Toronto, had carefully checked all the rules, spent a lot of time trying to ensure they'd be able to store the wheelchair in the cabin, including phone calls and emails with Air Canada. But when they boarded, they were told it wouldn't be possible. It wound up with mom and a sister being removed from the flight. They had to fly home later. Uh, while with the wheelchair and cargo, father and son Emery headed back to Toronto. So with the entire story, Katie Schultz, and I should mention she's also representing Mayan Ziv, a Toronto woman whose chair was damaged by Air Canada last year, even after bubble wrapping it before handing it over to staff. It still found it broken when the plane landed. Katie Schultz joins me now. Katie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, I followed along uh, on social media because you were posting quite regularly about this over the weekend. But this seems like just a, a remarkable uh, mess up by Air Canada. But tell me a bit about you've gone to see the Grand Canyon with your family. And, and what, what is the end? You're trying to come back. This is where we start the story. And you head to the airport. What, what is the situation and what do you encounter? It all started a little bit before we got to the airport. Because when we travel with Emery, my son, who is 16 years old today, we have to do a lot of advanced planning. And um, that's because Emery has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a neuromuscular wasting disease. And so he uses a wheelchair. So we did a lot of pre-planning and tons of communication with Air Canada so that by the time we got to the airport, there was predictable safety in the process to get Emery on the plane, get his wheelchair on the plane, and to have an easy flight home after a wonderful March break uh, with my kids and husband in Arizona. I had spoken with the assistance desk by phone with Air Canada and exchanged emails and was encouraged by them also to deal with the gate manager when we got to the airport. And we always get there very early. And I connected with the gate manager and had a really great conversation about how the plane that we were traveling on was part of the rules and regulations requiring them to make the closet in the cabin available to store Emery's collapsed manual wheelchair because right. the dimensions met the requirements. Historically, his wheelchair would be stored below with all of the luggage. Right, in the and cargo, I, right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard of other stories where those wheelchairs are getting damaged and sometimes obliterated by being in the cargo. There's actually been an evolution, which was quite encouraging, 
that these personal manual chairs, and I really have to emphasize it's a manual chair at this point. Because they're collapsible um, and right. Yes, of course. Exactly. If they met the appropriate dimensions, they can now be stored in the closet, in the cabin. And so and you figured this all out. And then all of a sudden, I gather you get on the plane and all of a sudden you're told there's no room in that closet. No room for this for this wheelchair in that closet. Yeah. And so I had I thought I had an ally with the gate manager. And as the flight crew was arriving at the gate to board the plane, there was some gossip happening in front of me. And, you know, a mother's intuition. Then, yes. Um, yes. Just, my mom is very similar. She can pick up, she can pick up a bad vibe from a, from a mile away. Yeah. yeah. So I'm watching this and the crew approaches the desk staff and there is a little something going on. And then the crew proceeds forward and the desk staff to each other saying how difficult one member of the crew is and how apparently she is always filing complaints. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious, please don't let this translate into anything. Be about the wheelchair. Yeah. And it was. It was. Yeah. And I also want you to know a similar situation happened to Mayan Ziv just in the last couple of weeks. Of course, most of your listeners have probably heard about Mayan's case with Air Canada when they destroyed her wheelchair in September. But even just a few weeks ago, there was an incident with Air Canada where they were refusing to put her portable, collapsible wheelchair in, in the closet. So and, I and we, and we, sh- and we should get. We, yeah, I want to talk about Mayan's case, and because, because you've talked about this, you're representing Mayan as a, you're, you know, a litigation lawyer as well. Uh, and and there's a culture. It seems like there's a culture and a communication issue going on at Air Canada here. But just in the in the in the immediate, what happens to you? Because I understand that you end up split. The family ends up split up. You don't fly home together. There a whole bunch of stuff happens in that moment in at Phoenix's airport. It's true. So we go down the ramp to get to the entrance. The uh, gate manager says she's speaking with the crew. She comes out to me. This is after my son, my husband, and my daughter have all boarded the plane. And the desk manager, gate manager, comes out to me and she says, the flight attendant says that you can't put the wheelchair in the closet. And I said, oh, no, well, that's, that's not what the requirements are. And she said, well, you'll have to, you'll have to speak with her directly. And Ben, I kind of would love to have (laughs) the support of decision makers at Air Canada so that I don't have to do all of that work myself. Yeah. Um, Because I had already done it. It's like, how many chefs are we going to have in this kitchen? Well, you're, Again, re-nego- you're, you're having to negotiate something that shouldn't be negotiable, I would say. And that's that's just from an outsider's point of view, right? You know, this isn't and, a negotiable thing. This is meant to be the way it is. And, and Ben, it might sound kind of funny at this stage where I'm on a national radio show with you telling this story. But I don't want to have to tell this story in front of a plane full of strangers. That wasn't my goal or ambition for traveling home with my family after a really important and special holiday. And, you know, there's there's issues around that that we need to evaluate so that it doesn't happen to other people in the future. So all of a sudden, you can't do what you're supposed to do. And I gather this gets, this gets a bit heated as well, because you feel like you've covered your bases and that this should be a non-negotiable situation. 
It's true. So the flight attendant that I was told I had to speak with directly on the plane while people were boarding, I said, I'd like to have Emery's chair in the closet. And she said, no, we don't do that. And I said, well, I've got an email and these are the requirements and, and the law. And she said, I've never heard of that. And I said, could I show you the email? She said, no. I said, could I send you the email? She said, no. And I started reading the email out loud. And I actually asked her to show me the closets because she said that they were full and she wasn't willing to move any of the contents. Then she said that they were full of emergency equipment. And I again asked to be able to see, there's actually two closets, I believe, at the Mm -hmm. front of the plane. I asked to be able to see them. She showed them to me. And in each, there were two small duffel bags. All four of the duffel bags could have fit in one of the closets. And of course, there's the overhead uh, storage. So I asked her to reconsider. And she said no. And she started to smile at me. And then I wish it was a nice smile like what you and I (laughs) would share with each other. But it was a sarcastic, very demeaning grin. And she said, you are misunderstanding what that email says. It means that if Air Canada has its own wheelchair on board, that we do not have to do this for your wheelchair. Oh, wow. And Ben, I'm a Canadian litigator. I have a master's degree in law, in conflict management. So I feel like I know how to read an email pretty well most of the time, right? Then she said, I want you to get off the plane. And I couldn't, of course, because by this time, the pre-boarding had stopped and all of the people were boarding the plane. So it was like a tidal wave coming in. And then she asked me again to get off the plane. I said, okay, I managed to squeeze through and get off the plane. And in that time, I did something that was a little bit shocking, even for my own personality. I said, I'm going to encourage you to de-escalate this. So I was kicked yeah. off the flight. <laughs> yeah, I heard you were kicked off the flight. And then your your daughter was too, because she she also asked for, for the for the flight attendant's surname, I gather. And then she was, so you wound up with just your, your husband and your son flying home by themselves. And then you having to fly in later because of all this. Did you hear from Air Canada eventually? I mean, I, I gather what happens now is that you fly home separately. Emery, uh, I've seen, is okay. I mean, not a fun situation for him, but the wheelchair doesn't make it on. Is that right? I mean, it doesn't make it on in the closet. It does not make it on in the closet, and the wheelchair ends up being stored with the cargo. I was not allowed to say goodbye to my son. They originally actually said they were kicking my my son and my husband off the flight. I explained very quickly that Emery is steroid dependent. And if he didn't have his medication, he could go into cardiac arrest. Right. Um, So they said that they would allow my husband and my son to fly home. I heard from them today, Ben. Right. uh, right That doesn't help you. That doesn't help you get home, clearly. But well, it didn't help me get home. It, It certainly didn't make me feel like my family's safety and security was any kind of priority for Air Canada. No. And and, what, and and you think this is a broader issue too, right? I mean, clearly the the point here is to hold people to account, but it's also to make sure, this, as you pointed out, this doesn't happen to anyone else. Uh, and you think that this is happening too often and there needs to be a real reckoning, uh, maybe not just even at Air Canada, but we'll talk specifically about them now, that there needs to be a real reckoning here, whether it's communication or, or just training, something needs to be done. The behavior against my family was retaliatory. And is that rooted in a lack of training and skills? 
Perhaps it is. But when you see incidents with people with disabilities regularly suffering, having their mobility devices damaged or lost, I have to question if this had not been made a priority for Air Canada, is it the culture of Air Canada to not invest in the safety and security of its disabled passengers? Because when you see a chronicity of these incidents, repeated negative damaging incidents, it's not right to think that it's a one-off because the data simply doesn't support that. And this is happening with Air Canada, you know, every single month, if not every single week. There's at least five significant incidents in the last five months. Air Canada needs to change its behavior and processes and training and facilities in order to include their disabled customers. Well, Katie Schultz, uh, a very happy birthday to Emery, despite all that's happened. And thank you so much for, uh, for walking us through that. Thanks for this opportunity. I appreciate it, Ben. I don't know how much of Joe Biden's visit you uh, to Ottawa on Friday you caught, but there was a few really special moments. One of them happened to be when Green MP and Green Party co-leader Elizabeth May handed Joe Biden a chocolate bar. The reason for it was uh, is that it wasn't just any chocolate bar. It was a chocolate bar wrapped in an incredible story of war and survival, displacement, building a new life, success, love, and of course, chocolate. Um, let's play, I mean, it's a little bit hard to hear when she hands it over. We'll play a bit of it, just so you can hear the exchange that was going on. And the fact is, uh, after he'd been given the chocolate bar, I don't think he quite realized what it was. So Joe Biden later asked to have it back after a signing ceremony with the Prime Minister. Have a listen. Don't let the Prime Minister keep him chocolate. You can just hear Biden say there, who's got my chocolate, right? Who's got my chocolate? Well, the company based in Nova Scotia, is called Peace by Chocolate, and it was founded by Tarek Haddad in 2016. Haddad and his family had moved to that province as refugees in 2015 after fleeing the violence in their home country of Syria a few years before. And the arrival of that single bar of chocolate in the hands of a U.S. president, can you imagine that single bar of their chocolate landing in the hands of a U.S. president marked another chapter in a tale that began all the way back in Damascus in 1980, the Syrian capital. It's a story of dreams. It's a story of love, family, success, war, loss, displacement, rebuilding, and through it all, chocolate. And Tarek Haddad joins me now from Antagonish in Nova Scotia. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ben. It's uh, been quite the last a few days, I would say, have been extraordinary. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, since I came to Canada, this has been a lot. There's been a lot of milestones. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everyone was um, had a lot of questions when Elizabeth May pulled out a chocolate bar and handed it to the president. And we thought, well, what chocolate bar could it be? And then, of course, I think people know a bit about your story. But what was that right. moment like for you? You didn't know that was happening, did you? 
I had no clue, actually. I was never informed that Elizabeth May did not really tell us anything before she gifted the bar to the president. I know that she met my mother and my sister in our shop in Antigonish a few weeks before she gifted the bar when she was giving lectures at Santa Fe University. But the, um, the other thing, actually, is we didn't know that she had it in her pocket, gifted to the president. I was in a long meeting when this happened, and then my phone just couldn't stop really ringing and buzzing. And it yeah. was really surreal to see how much, you know, that bar has created an impact. And we were just speculating about oh, what company that is or what did she give him. People thought it was just like a, a Blake, you know, with a piece on it. And they didn't know it was chocolate until really the conversation continued when the president was leaving. And then Elizabeth May would tell the president, well, probably you should ask for your chocolate back. We don't want any bilateral damage to the relationship because the right. prime minister deprived you from your chocolate bar. And then the prime minister asked for the chocolate bag. And then the president was like, before then he was like, what is my chocolate? And afterwards it was like, if you guys don't give me any hard questions, he was telling the media, yeah. then I am probably going to share this chocolate with you. <laughs> so, I mean, it, there was a lot of hilarious moments, you know, yeah. in the same time, but the president, I think, took it really lightly. And I'm really happy with the response so far from Canada and the U.S. Yeah, it became sort of the 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 discussion item of the day, right? Which was, and he, he apparently the president has a notorious sweet tooth too. So chocolate was a perfect, a perfect gift for him. What kind was it? Do you know? It was the, our peace bar, which is uh, milk chocolate with hazelnuts. Oh, that's uh, one a good of the one. first series that we created. Yeah, yeah, that that one's popular everywhere. Which takes me back to the beginnings of this story because this story actually starts way back when, when your father, who's an engineer started making chocolate in Damascus in the 80s, right? That's right, actually. My father started this uh, whole concept of chocolate making from scratch. He was an engineer. He did not like being an engineer anymore. He wanted to do something with more impact and more change. And he found out that chocolate was really that passion for him when he was spreading happiness, when he gives people chocolate. It was the reason why people were smiling, where people were happy, were sharing and connecting. Uh, with loved ones. And that's why the company really grew fast in Damascus from the very humble beginnings in the home kitchen to become one of the largest manufacturing facilities for chocolate in the entire region. My father had hundreds of employees in 2008. And then the factory continued expanding until 2012, when right. it was destroyed in the war. In the, in the beginnings of the Civil War. It's also how he met your mom, too, right? I mean, there's a, there's a love story it wrapped up in his love of chocolate, too. That's right, actually. My father and my mother met because my mom stopped by the second shop that my father opened, and he was on the way to the airport. And in the moment that my father and my father just met my mother, he wanted to really gift her something to give to her family. And he just found out he made this special batch of chocolate with the most delicious ingredients we'd ask for, of dark chocolate, milk chocolate, and white chocolate infused with Syrian raspberries and oh, wow. Damascus berries and roasted almonds and pistachios and hazelnuts. And he really decorated each piece like a little piece of jewelry with exuding sophistication. He would grab the box, give them to my mom, who was just a customer at the time. And then my mom would leave, would come back after she was very surprised when my father had included a note in that box that said, my name is Isam. I don't make chocolate. I make happiness. Oh, wow. And she loved it. She loved that touch. And my mother came back and bought eight more boxes of chocolate. She became the best customer for my father. 
And then a few months later, they, these two guys fell in love and they got married. And that's how I was born. Incredible. Um, it's incredible. It's really, really incredible, you know. And then my family were, were already joined in that same mission of spreading love throughout the product that my father was making with so much happiness and also so much care and passion. And it really was reflected, I think, in everything that my father and my family were doing back home to give back and to support those who were less fortunate in the community. And then I, I know listeners are familiar with, with all that happened in Syria more than a decade now ago, but the civil war begins and all of a sudden life changes for a lot of people, including your family. A hundred percent. You know, things started changing in 2011, but the war reached Damascus in 2012. And then one night in the middle of the summer, we heard explosions around the building. We rushed the basement. We were stuck for five nights without water, without food without medicine, without the basics and the needs of life. And then we rushed out to the building after a ceasefire. We stayed in the maskets in another building. But then later on that year, I saw on the news there were going to be explosions in the area where the factory was. And then I called my dad. I said, Dad, you need to leave the factory and ask all the staff to leave. My father would shut down the factory. All the staff would leave. And then 10 minutes after my father had left, the factory was bombed by an airstrike. Oh, well. It was one of the most powerful explosions, actually, that targeted that region. And then it, it was leveled on the ground. You know, the second largest chocolate manufacturing factory was destroyed in one bombing, like in a split of the moment. And then my father came back home. He was speechless. He was saying, everything has gone. Everything has gone. And then we were just forced to leave the country a few months after, after a mortar rocket hit near me and my brother. We didn't want to leave the country. You know, no one was born to immigrate. No one was born to become a refugee. And it is really unfortunate that many people just think that they are very invincible, while the difference is between anyone in Canada or anyone born in any safe place, the only difference between them and the refugee is luck, right? It's just your luck based on yeah. Yeah, where you are born. You, you arrive in, in, how did Nova Scotia, how did it become Nova Scotia when you were starting? Because I believe you were in Lebanon at this point, right? Like so many others who fled Syria, you wound up in, in a neighboring country looking for somewhere else to really lay down roots again and to rebuild what had been lost. A hundred percent. You know, as any refugee, you would go first to a neighboring country as your first host country. And then if you cannot go back home, then you need to find another opportunity, another country to reset land. And while I applied to go to 14 other countries around the globe, Canada was the only country that opened the doors for us. I did not even was, I did not get an invitation for even an interview at another embassy. Canada really? was absolutely the only country. The Canadian embassy was the only embassy in the world that opened the doors for me for an interview and to hear me out. And then after they knew what my family did back home and my potential is, they invited me for a resettlement with my family. And then we ended up in... Toronto. I ended up in Toronto first, and then my flight was the next day to Nova Scotia, the place where I never really heard of before. And then I just realized it was a community sponsorship. There are kind people 8,000 kilometers far away from the Middle East that they fundraise to bring a family they didn't know before. And we were the lucky ones because, you know, we had the opportunity to see firsthand how kindness was begetting kindness. And how people believed in their small act of kindness that was changing the lives of many people around uh, around the planet. And we were just one of them. How quickly do you start to look to chocolate to bring you the kind of comfort and joy that, that chocolate had always brought you as you start a life in this strange new place? 
Well, you know, we found out that the chocolate was that universal language that we needed to spread messages of love, inclusion, and acceptance. And that was really the thing that has inspired our family to continue the things that, that we were doing before before we came here. And uh, it was like the bridge, and it was a connection that we were able to just bring with us. While the community was really kind of supporting us in the beginning, we believed that it was our responsibility to give back and to do the things that we love the most, which is really building a business from scratch while we offer jobs. And in this, all this, the whole families, I mean, your father's there too. He's hes now kind of found again what he had lost back home. Uh, I can't imagine it's been easy, but it must be gratifying. Oh, absolutely. You know, like just coming back to the things that, that we have done before coming here uh, was very rewarding because you really, a lot of the time, you don't know the value of your passion. You don't, you don't know the value of the things you, you have until you don't have it anymore. And you realize in, the, in many sense when life knocks you out, you know, to, to the bottom. And I think that's when you realize how much you had in the beginning. And when we were in Lebanon, we were reflecting on the value that we had the most. And the value that we had the most was peace. Right. But at the same time, we needed... When you have a value, you need a vehicle yes, to spread that value, right? And that vehicle was chocolate for us. It was what we needed. It was a universal language. Everyone understood when we came to Canada. We told them, hey, we make chocolate. Everyone knew what we do. Everyone knew what we are all about. And then when we infuse this brand and value in what we were doing and telling the community, it took us to a whole new level you know, of understanding without having to talk much. Even in the, the brand that we said and we built since we came here, Peace by Chocolate, really tells the entire story without us saying anything. And I think that's really the power of yeah. journeys and, of, and, and people supporting a cause because we are in the business of peace, not the business of chocolate. People understand right away when they see it, what you're, what you're trying to convey. You've brought in others who've been fleeing. Um, I mean, you fled... You fled civil war you brought in others who fled conflict as well now ukrainians specifically we actually yeah, our uh, our company now almost 25 20% of our workforce now are ukrainians and it is just remarkable and it is really growing I, we believe that when you are successful it is your moral responsibility to lift others to success and at the same time we have made commitments to hire refugees in our company, whether in the factory, but also support businesses started by refugees in mentorship, in distribution, in marketing. The other part really that we are uh, working on every day is the partnerships. So if you learn more about Peace by Chocolate, you would learn about the Peace on Earth Society. And that's where we give back to many causes across the country, from refugee cause to mental health cause to indigenous peoples, you know, advocacy. And we are just spreading what we can and giving back as much as we can because we say we we don't need much, you know, to, to live. As human beings, I think we are on this planet for a purpose of sharing. And uh, right now we are uh, finding some success in our business, and we believe that it is kind of uh, our responsibility to give back some of that to the people that we care the most about. The Canadians that welcomed us with open arms deserve the best from us. I was thinking back to that note that your dad left in those chocolates for your mom way back. Um, I don't yes. make chocolate, I make happiness. And it felt very appropriate seeing that bar being handed over to the president. 
Absolutely, 100%. You know, when there is so much anxiety and polarization on the news and in politics, you need something uplifting. You need something inspiring. You need something that gives you hope. And I was so happy when our story was part of the, an unofficial part of the agenda of the United, the, the visit from the United States president. Because right now, my hope is that the president and his team and everyone in the U.S. is going to reflect on our story and hopefully learn more about how Canada opened the doors for us. Because well, after that heritage moment, we were really honored to just be there. Tarek, it's, uh, thank you so much for sharing the story with me tonight. It is a wonderful one. And again, congratulations on, uh, on, on that little moment that meant so much on Friday. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ben. Appreciate it. The identity of the Canadian astronaut chosen to be one of four taking part in NASA's Artemis II mission. One of either David Sejac, Jeremy Hansen, Jennifer uh, Seide Gibbons, or Joshua Kutrick will join three NASA astronauts on that mission, and they will be the first Canadian astronaut to travel around the moon, probably sometime late next year. It will be the first crewed mission to our closest neighbor, our nearest neighbor, since Apollo 17 back in 1972. And it follows on the success of Artemis 1, which sent an uncrewed Orion capsule to lunar orbit back late last year. President Biden, of course, mentioned all of this in his speech to Parliament on Friday. In just a few days, NASA is going to announce an international team of astronauts who will crew the Artemis 2 mission, the first human voyage to the moon since Apollo mission ended more than 50 years ago will consist of three Americans and one Canadian. We choose to return to the moon together. Together we return to the moon. Now, there were some people who, I mean, it hasn't been talked about that much, right? It's a very big deal, but we haven't talked about it a lot. So I saw some people reacting to Biden thinking, what's he talking about? Did he just announce this in Parliament and we didn't know? We've known for a while. We've known for a while that a Canadian was going to be involved in this. Uh, it's all part of the larger Artemis program, which aims to eventually establish a crewed outpost near the lunar south pole. And the first astronauts are expected to touch down there in 2025 on the Artemis Three, but we had one. Next comes two, and there will be a Canadian involved in two. And joining us with more on that is Mathieu Caron. He's director of astronauts, life sciences, and space medicine at the Canadian Space Agency. Mathieu, thank you. Hello. So this is an exciting time. I mean, the president brought it up in Parliament on Friday, and I don't think it caught a ton of people off guard, but I think people may have forgotten that this is actually happening quite soon, and we're going to know who the Canadian is even sooner, uh, who'll be part of Artemis too. So it must be quite an exciting time at the Canadian Space Agency. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone here is, is, is really happy about, uh, about this, uh, this upcoming announcement of our, of our colleague astronaut that, uh, that's going to go on Artemis II. Um, it was a long time in the planning. This opportunity is afforded to us because you know, of our long contribution with, with NASA and our other international partners, and most precisely for the, uh, the inclusion of the robotic manipulator on the gateway station. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had a real, we've had a, a lot of involvement in this Artemis uh, project. But tell me a bit about Artemis Two, because I think people are going to wake up on Monday and realize there's a Canadian heading to the moon. Maybe not walking on the moon, but heading to the moon at least. 
a few months ago, we had Artemis One, a, a similar rocket that, that was launched from the Kennedy Space Center, and that went around the moon uh, a few times and came back about a couple of weeks later. There were no astronauts on board at that time. So Artemis Two, right now we're shooting for, for late 2024, will have a crew of four, including one Canadian. And we're really excited about that because that will make Canada the second nation to have sent one of its nationals beyond low Earth orbit. So right. we're all very happy about that. Yeah, I know it's going to it's going to be an exciting uh, exciting collaboration as well. What is the what is the purpose of Artemis two? Because I gather there's already we're already talking about Artemis three and what that will bring one step at a time, right? Precisely, it's a very it's a methodical way of reaching the moon again. So I mentioned Artemis one that was that was uncrewed, so no one was on board, so that allowed NASA to verify. Uh, the various systems, but now we're, we're, we'll be ready. Once we give the go ahead for Artemis two, we'll be ready for the, the the second stage where we have four astronauts on board that will complete this verification. So we'll make sure that all of the systems are are working right, that the mission is is being planned accordingly, and that will set the stage for for future missions that will take future astronauts to the moon surface, to the lunar surface, but also construct another space station that will orbit around the moon. Right. So, I mean, this is our, our return to the moon for the first time. I mean, I, I was going to say in my lifetime, 1972 was the last time I was just a little, a little, little person. But it is it is it is exciting to, to think that we're going back in terms of the selection process for the Canadian astronaut. How is that going to work? Do we know already what how NASA is going to go about uh, making this process? Are they doing it in conjunction with the CSA? Yes, we've worked together and it, it's a. Uh... It's a very hard problem. It's a beautiful problem because we have, uh, as part of our astronaut corps, we have four extremely talented individuals that are, all four are qualified for uh, long duration space missions. So uh, within that, then we were, we worked with NASA to pick the appropriate uh, individual and bearing in mind that any of the four would have made great crew members for Artemis too. And I guess we'll, we'll know who that crew member is come on, come Monday next week. Is, is there a back, is, is, how does it work? Is there a backup process as well? Like, is there sort of, there's a, there's a main astronaut and then a, and a, then an alternate. Is that how it works? Well, on Monday, we will announce the, the prime astronauts going there. And then we're working with NASA to, to develop uh, backup scenarios. Should it be required? We, we still have about 18 months or so, right. maybe a little bit more. So we have time to, to solidify the plans for the year. Uh, for any kind of backup assignment, right? November twenty twenty four is the date. I is the date I keep seeing. That's correct. That's what we're tracking. And there's been some progress already towards it too. I understand the space launch system, the rocket core stage, all that. Those things are being. I mean, we're building towards that. It's not just the crew, but everything around it as well, which is uh, which is uh, moving along quite quickly. Exactly. So right now, NASA is still peering over the uh, the data that they collected from Artemis One, making sure that all the systems operated as they expected. Looking, for instance, uh, one of the key objectives of Artemis One was looking at the the performance of the heat shield when right. the, when the capsule came back on Earth. So they're making sure that you know there's no zone unturned, so to make sure that our astronauts will be able to fly safely uh, with Artemis Two. And then you mentioned it briefly already, but then Artemis three would would in fact see people back on the moon, the surface of, because these Artemis two does not in fact land on the moon, right? That's correct. Artemis two will just perform a, a flyby, uh, but Artemis three right now is tracking a, a lunar landing. But uh, again, you know, there's been a lot of evolutions for their, these various missions. Uh, you know, that can evolve. So right now, we'll, we're, all eyes are focused on Artemis two to make sure that you know the systems perform as intended.
Canada, uh, Mathieu, has a lot of involvement in this. There's a Canada Arm 3. There's a lunar rover, I know. We're playing a big role in this uh, in this return to the moon. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So right now, based on, on our expertise uh, with our robotic arm, and you, you, your listeners will, will remember the, the Canada Arm 1 on the space right. shuttles, followed by the Canada Arm 2 on the International Space Station. When the time came to, to, to select a, a good, reliable ro- robotics manipulator for the gateway outpost and NASA approached CSA and, and clearly we're happy to to contribute again another robotic manipulator, Canada Arm 3, uh, you know, why, why change a good brand name in return for this uh, critical contribution that will that will help the assembly and the uh, maintenance of that lunar outpost orbiting, you know, and, and beyond low Earth orbit. Then in return, we had the uh, opportunity to have uh, two flights for Canadian astronauts. Right. The first one being Artemis 2, the second one will be at a later time to that, that same space station. And uh, and also the, the ability to perform some scientific experiments in the uh, Gateway Station. Wow, on the moon! I mean, orbiting the moon, just like orbiting just like the, the International Space Station, right? To that extent, there is kind of everyone gets their gets their time, right? Is that? Yes, it's it's easy. To, you know, I myself tend to drawing a comparison between uh, the International Space Station and the Gateway Outpost. But if if you if you were to go to step far away from Earth, you'd see that the uh, the International Space Station is is very close. It is, to yes. The, uh, yeah, so it's a very it's about it orbits the Earth at about you know a few hundred kilometers, whereas the Gateway Outpost is significantly farther. So whereas we have like right now we have seven astronauts and cosmonauts at all times on the International Space Station, the the Gateway will be visited periodically by crews of four, and they will stay there for a, a few weeks at most, because they're, they're they will have been they will be considerably further from the earth like we're talking you know like hundreds of thousands of kilometers and as a result that will make them the farthest human beings from the earth that we've seen the environment is considerably different so we have several astronauts that have gotten exposed to the uh, to the microgravity environment but they will not be as protected from sort of like the radiation environment you know all around the the gateway outpost there so all the work that we've done on the space station will serve us to prepare you know, like to, to, we're, we're investigating what's going on with the human body, microgravity, and in the space environment. Well, that serves as a setting stage for further exploration around the moon and eventually uh, going beyond, like, say, to Mars. Right. But as you mentioned, very different, right? I mean, this is, um, we're going where we have not gone before, to, 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 coin, to coin an old phrase. Exactly. And, you know, it's a little like, you know, progressively going on, a, on more and more demi- demanding hikes. Right. One of our astronauts uh, was comparing it to, like, before you go, you know, doing some some hardcore camping, you know, you try out your equipment in the backyard, you know, before venturing into more demanding terrain. Yeah, or mountain climbing, or any of those things. Exactly. One, one, one. Again, one, one step at a time. But it's it's interesting to hear how Canada is involved in these. And there's other things that we're doing too. I mean, we spoke to someone a few weeks ago who's involved in the lunar rover aspect of this. But Canada's there's going to be quite the, the Canadian stamp on this Artemis project. We have a, a program that we instituted, the Lunar Exploration Acceleration Program, that we see, for instance, all the demands on space exploration, and we want to make sure that Canada is, is well-positioned. So as a result, we're trying to foster an environment within Canada where different academic and, and commercial players will be ready to support uh, those, those demanding tasks. So there are a number of contracts and contributions that make sure that we we will have the right technology when the time comes to to making further, greater contributions within international partnerships to uh, to really have an active role in those uh, exploration activities. And and we I think a lot of us um, 
who maybe weren't old enough to to have remembered it happening uh, or weren't there, but we do remember the flag on the moon and the, the symbolism of landing on the moon back when. Uh, but this is different. There's there's a lot going on here in terms of learning uh, life sciences, as you mentioned, space medicine. There's a lot we're trying to there's a lot we're trying to learn here with this return to the moon. And uh, there's so much to learn, but um, since we're so far away and they. The astronauts are so self-reliant. That's where all of our expertise uh, on the space station will play a key role. Uh, you may recall that, you know, since uh, November uh, 2000, there's always been a human presence on the International Space Station. Right. Since we contributed a robotic system, then Canada was entitled to a, a fraction of the resources of the International Space Station. And over the past few years, we've elected to focus on the health aspects of, of life in space, because unle- until you know what happens to the human body in those conditions, well, you never know if you may ha- what could happen if you right. venture much beyond, where, whether like, uh, you know, the body reacts differently, but also you make sure that you have the tools and the instruments and the uh, knowledge in place so that astronauts can, you know, successfully face any kind of medical emergencies away from Earth. I, I imagine you'll be paying a lot of attention to the the, the so the as yet unnamed Canadian who'll be part of Artemis too. That will be the first opening for that for you. It'll be an exciting time to see how the body reacts, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a it's a relative, but it's going to be a little different. So they will right. have traveled a little further away. Those are the um, the Artemis two crew. But for not as long as crew, as space station crew members, so the International Space Station crew members. So, for instance, we're talking about a trip of a few weeks compared to like uh, some some stays on the space station that last between six months and a year. So we'll learn more. We'll learn different things because if one day we go to Mars, then you know the trip will take several months uh, before they can get to their destination. Well, Mathieu Caron, it's an exciting time. We look forward to hearing next Monday who that Canadian will be. Thank you so much for uh, giving us an update. My pleasure. Well, if winning matters, and sometimes it does, when it comes to contests, certainly winning matters. My next guest is something of a champion herself. Um, you know, if you don't play, you can't win. And there are a lot of contests out there, right? There are a lot of companies who are giving stuff away. And now there are contests that lots of people enter, clearly, and there are contests that a lot of people don't. But you need to be strategic to give yourself the best chance of winning. Sometimes you need to do things like make videos or write essays to because those are the ones that people don't like to enter. The easier it is to enter, the more people enter. The harder it is, the fewer people do. And if you enter, it gives you a better chance of winning. Don't take my word for it because I don't enter contests. I've, I've never, I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. It seems like maybe it's just the time or, you know, it just, it's not something I've done over the course of, uh, over the course of a lifetime. Uh, I know people who have, but Elaine Douglas from Beamsville, Ontario near St. Catharines, she's won so many contests. She loses track of her prizes. Sometimes she's like, oh, I forgot I entered that one. Here it is. Um, and she's at, because she's at, she enters hundreds of contests sometimes a day up around the holidays, it can be like 500 in a day because there are so many out there, but to do that, you need a lot of things. First of all, you need to be diligent, you need to be organized and you need a plan, right? You can't just do all that without actually knowing how it works. You need a system and Elaine Douglas joins us now to tell us all about it. Elaine, thank you so much. Hi, no problem. Thanks for having me. It is a remarkable story. I mean, tell me about how you first got into contests, period. Have you always been a big fan <laughs> since you were young, or was it something that you that you fell into later? 
I'd say it was more something that I fell into later in life. Uh, I remember I did enter some when I was a kid, but mostly it was, I got into it by, I, I started to coupon, right. uh, trying to save my family some money. I was a you know, single mom, two kids, and just trying to get by. So I started out with couponing, and I found a giveaway uh, on a forum that was for some coupons. And I was like, oh, yeah, this would be fun to try and win. So I entered, and I won it. Wow. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and that uh, got the ball started. And then from there, I just started entering all sorts of contests. I guess you would have come up with the system as you did it, right? As you perfected it, you'd sort of start to realize what worked and what didn't. So did that take a while to sort of, I mean, I imagine at the beginning, you just kind of do it randomly and then you stop doing it. Yeah. yeah, I think what really started it mostly was I had online friends. I started to make online friends that contested as well. Mm-hmm. So once I started going like, oh, maybe I'll get into this contesting thing i joined some groups on facebook and then you start making new friends on facebook and they start sharing contests and then you start sharing contests and everybody just helps each other out so i didn't feel really alone in it (laughs) of entering all of these contests i was able to have a community around me that was able to find contests and share them amongst each other so that we're all able to help each other out so uh, just how many contests are we talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been doing this for about a decade now. So right. I have a system in place. My computer's all set up for contesting. All of my social media basically is following companies. So all of my feeds on my social media are going to show what contests are coming up. And I think my algorithm is set to contest because every single time I open up my Instagram, I'll have at least, oh gosh, probably five to 10 posts that are contests. Wow. But on a daily basis, I'd say on a good day, I'm entering about 100 to 150 contests a day. Come Christmas time, though, once December hits, I'm entering about four to 500 contests a day. Four to 500, <laughs> even 100 to 150. So I know because I read I read an interview that you'd done, you have, I mean, no one just could do that haphazardly. You need a system set up to do it, right? Well, I Kinda? mean, kind of. Like for me on my, like say for instance, if I go on Instagram, I have a bunch of friends that tag me on giveaways. So I don't even have to go looking anymore for giveaways all it just comes up on my feed it comes to me yeah because we're tagging each other back and forth at the beginning I was really searching for contests but there are websites out there that do exist that are like aggregates so they will list all of the contests that they have found that are available for either Americans or Canadians to enter of course I'd like to enter all the Canadian ones right of course (laughs) Um, yeah, the the, sl- the smaller that you have your circle for contesting, the more chance you have to win. So say, for instance, I want to have a small circle. I'm going to enter all of my local contests. If I want to expand my horizons, but my odds might be a little bit worse, I'm going to go province-wide. And then I'm going to go Canada-wide. And then I'm going to go international, which is Canadian and U.S. But you have to understand that the odds of winning a giveaway that are open to Canada and U.S. are way harder than trying to, you know, win a dinner at my local restaurant. Of course. I, I, and you must, I know for a fact that you you win quite frequently. Yeah. 
I do win. It all depends on how much effort I put into it. A lot of people will say, oh, you're so lucky. And to me, it's really not luck. It's persistence. Like you have to put in the work in order to get the prizes. Like I will honestly spend a couple hours either a day or, you know, once at Christmas time comes, I'm spending a lot more time online entering contests. So it's almost like a job at that point, but you're never guaranteed to win. So I could go a month without winning anything. I've entered every single day and win nothing, but I don't let that get to me. Like I like to focus on when I do actually get the prizes and do win. Yeah, you (laughs) play the long game. You play the long game. Tell me about some of the stuff you've won, because I imagine if you're entering that many contests, some of the stuff is (laughs) stuff you clearly want and some of the stuff maybe, maybe isn't. Yeah, well, there are some some great prizes that I've won along the way. I would say my biggest, best, most rewarding prize was a $10,000 donation to the food bank in pasta sauce. So my local food bank was able to have pasta sauce year long. And yeah, that was delivered right to them and they were able to have that. So that was a great prize that I won that wasn't for me. Things for me that I've won. Um, oh gosh, there's so many. <laughs> there's many, aren't there? I, I mean, it, but that first well, one like, is a great one. I mean, I'd never even thought yeah. about winning a contest on behalf of your local food bank. In that of itself, is really is quite really... a few times. Yeah, I've won another food bank or the same food bank. I had won them three hundred dollars in meats. I did try to win them a whole year's worth of eggs, but that was a hard one. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a lot of competition. Yeah, one for them, but yeah, and I had won them a hundred dollar donation from another company, so. It's always fun to win on behalf of others. Like I did try and win a lot for my kids when they were younger. I've also won like I, I won a year's worth of Tim Hortons. Right. But yes. I was helping, yeah. I was helping a man walk across Canada with his husky. And I ended up saying to the company, no, I'd really like to give half my prize to him and help, you know, walk across Canada. He was doing it for mental health at the time. And I just wanted to help out. And they're like, let me give them a year's worth and we'll give you a year's worth oh, as well wow. for being so sweet so you, about it. So you pointed them out I to something the that, they, that they that they could support, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, what a great idea. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's not always just about winning for myself, but winning for others too is always fun. Do you still get the same thrill when you win or has it become oh, less? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> really? Oh, great. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's always that little rush when you're when you get that email or you get that notification that, hey, you've been tagged in a post and it says congratulations all yeah. the time. It just, yeah, it warms your heart. <laughs> you knew I was going to ask you this probably, but, you know, your favorite one and and the, and you're sort of the one that was the most, well, disappointing might be the wrong word, but maybe your most peculiar one. I'd say the most handy one I've won, which I use every single day and probably I will for the rest of my life is a $2,000 set of pots and pans. That's so a nice like, set, yes. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's like top of the line. Chefs use them. They're beautiful pots and pans. So that's the most convenient one. Um, I've won so many like gift cards. I had won my daughter an iPad. The only thing I haven't really won are trips. Like I'd really like to win a trip. I never won a TV, but I've won a lot of different things. Like I've won coolers, I've won sweaters, I win clothes, I win shoes, I've won. Like I even won so many running shoes, I gave some to my ex-husband. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, 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 uh, that's magnanimous. That's, that's yeah, good. I won some for me. I won some for my kids. And I was like, ah, I won some, an extra pair. And I'm like, do you want a pair of running shoes? He's like, sure. Wow. 
Yeah. Well, I've won him a couple of things over the years. He doesn't you've said, mind. You've said that it's that of course if you're looking for contests, try to find ones that not many people are entering, right? You can kind of spot mm. if a contest has a lot of entrants or not. Well, I am in a bunch of groups on Facebook where it is a, a small community of people that enter a lot of contests. So they have an eye out and they're following companies and they see their posts right away. So sometimes like I entered a VEAT contest. It was uh, for VEAT Canada. It's a, a right. hair removal. The hair removal. Yeah, yeah. And the easiest way for me to check how many people had entered the contest was to follow the hashtag. Right. So I followed the hashtag and I checked on Instagram. There was only two entries. I had my friend check on TikTok and there was only like four entries. So that made it six entries. And my entry only made it seven. And it was the last day of the contest. And it was to do a video of, you know, why why you use their products or, you know, I don't use their products because right. I don't shave. <laughs> right. Yeah. I ended up still winning. $250 to Amazon just by putting up a video of about a minute long of why I don't shave. <laughs> right. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it was funny because I won even though I don't use their product. And I openly say I don't use the product. <laughs> I suppose once they start the contest, in their mind, they just want to finish the contest, right? I mean, yeah, what, what do you do yeah. with and the prize if you don't give it away? Well, right? um, <laughs> like the company's always tagged and hashtagged. So regardless, they're still seeing their name on a video and that's how they want their marketing wanted their marketing obviously i'm sure they wanted more people to enter um the grand prize was won by my friend ivy she won a thousand dollars to wow. amazon that day so <laughs> it was a small group of you <laughs> well, yeah. i mean it's out there there's nothing wrong with it they're out there right i mean that's the whole point if you do yeah, your homework yeah. and, and you know we the more we, work you have to put into it usually the less entries there will be like right. most people don't want to do a video. Most people don't want to do an essay. Most people don't want to, you know, take a picture and use a hashtag. They just want an easy entry. Those easy entries will have more entries and the harder entries will have less. That's your advice then. If, if, if a contest looks like it demands a few hurdles, then you're probably, your odds exactly. of winning are probably better. So it's worth, if you specifically, if you like the prize, uh, nothing oh, yeah. wrong with an Amazon gift card that you that you're, that you're willing to jump, go through those hurdles. Right. Even like, say for instance, if you're walking through the grocery store and you see on a package, it says, submit a receipt and you could win blah, blah, blah. Those ones are really great. I've seen so many of my friends winning off of those. Like really? recently, I just had a friend win a $10,000, like a room makeover. So oh, she had a $5,000 or $6,000 TV delivered. She had the sound system delivered. There was a check in the box. Like, wow. <laughs> I've had another friend that just won a big Super Bowl trip. So she gets the airfare, $1,000 cash, the hotel, tickets to the Super Bowl. All paid for. So. Yeah. Well, it's it's true because I I mean I don't enter contests ever, and I always look and think, oh, that that looks like a good prize, but uh, I can't be bothered. And and you you're right. If you bother to do it, win. if yeah. you bother to do it, then you then then you can win. Um, well, it's also it, the outlook that you have. If you yes. feel like you won't win, you're not gonna win. But if you have that feeling in your heart that you know what, I might just win this if I enter. You never know. Just one entry could get you that win. Elaine, you're proof positive of that. Uh, <laughs> Elaine Douglas, thank you so much for uh, for your time. Have a great day.
Elaine Douglas. I should mention also volunteers uh, helps with the local school and their community garden does all kinds of other stuff. I think she only spends a few hours a day on on the contests themselves. If you're curious, but wow. Well, I guess someone's got to win, right? And if you're good at it, if you're good at it, I just wouldn't have the patience. I mean, let's be honest. I wouldn't have the patience to do it, uh, to do it properly, at least. Uh, but it, ah, wow. I, I, was, I had no idea that there were people out there who could enter and win that many contests. And I just thought, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> people do all kinds of interesting stuff, right? Maybe not things you'd like to do, but wow. Anyway, Shane Hewitt, we'll ask him whether he enters contests. I don't know, actually. Does she, is, does she, is Shane a contest-entering kind of person? I would venture to say no, but we'll let him answer after this. <laughs> 